Shirts on. Mics on. And no more dick jokes. jokes. <laughs> we are here on the podcast of Ruined for Life. Now there's another one by the same name, but don't worry, you're in the right spot if you're looking for Carrie and... Whitney. Perfect. Uh, so roll call taken care of. And we are, this is our first episode, so we figured we would tell you a little bit about who we are and um, why we're here and why we hope that you'll hang out and uh, eavesdrop on our very us conversations. So the first thing is maybe the reason why we wanted to do this and then we'll kind of try and Tarantino our way into backtracking into what it is. So we'll start with reasons. I asked Whitney, uh, harangued is probably a better description, to do this crazy thing with me in the spring because I started I started to make a foray into the world of podcasts that is going more or less well. And there were a lot of things that happened, you know, different conversations with different friends, different things I heard, different things I watched, blah, 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 that I... Uh, made me convinced of this one very impressive fact that I hadn't really noticed before. We've been friends for like five, six years. Five years. Yeah, five years. Um, and so in that five years, I hadn't noticed how unique this particular friendship was for this particular reason, which is that uh, we who are pretty perceptive and interested cats are... Uh, have this like way of helping each other see without without intending to it just happens by itself helping each other see more of what we already love so did you see this movie yes and then three hours later we're still talking about it and we're learning more and more from this thing that we already saw already loved maybe not even saw together and and but I come like I hang up the phone thinking, wow, there was so much more there than even I saw, you know. And so, uh, I wanted. I noticed that the more I talked to people and the more things I saw, the that this quality is not so obvious and it's not so naturally occurring for everybody. And. Uh, and then I had a couple of moments in which I realized that there's a lot of, there's a lot to say about the culture, right? When I was in, I spent a year or so in Japan and everyone was like, oh yeah, America's a dumpster fire, right? And it's like, oh, okay, well, that's one way. Um, and there's a, there's a lot you can say, good, bad, and different about a lot of different things. You can talk, you can grab any topic you want and you can say a lot of things about what's happening in the world today and you can bemoan it and... Uh, and have your own take on why it's everything's going to hell in a handbasket. Uh, but whenever I talk to Whitney, all of those factors are still in play, and yet there was always a reason for hope. And it wasn't like we had to like dig really hard and like try really hard to find some reason to like hang on to hope with our fingernails. It just came out naturally in the things that we loved: books, movies, songs. And so I wanted, I asked her to do this with me because I wanted to really like 
have a dedicated moment every once in a while in which I got to steal away some of her precious time and look at things that are happening and see what we can learn. And then let other people be a fly on the wall and not just keep this wonderful gift to ourselves, I guess. So I asked her and she was still thinking about it and then I announced to our friends that we were doing it. And so then she kind of got pigeonholed into saying yes, but you know, she's free, so. <laughs> I will say that the fact that we discussed so many movies itself is really interesting to me because Carrie has seen a million gajillion movies roughly, give or take a few. And I have seen zero, give or take a few. <laughs> Those are very technical numbers. They're written down somewhere. There's a spreadsheet. Yeah, there is a spreadsheet. And so it is unique when she calls me and she says, have you seen this? And I say, yes. And we get to discuss it. And it does, this discussion will happen for hours um, on the phone. And then... There's a funny thing that happens that we were talking about a little bit ago before starting to record this podcast that she says somewhere in the conversation, she'll say, hold on, somebody's at the door. Let me call you back. <laughs> it doesn't happen by saying like, oh, you know what? We've been on the phone for three hours. I guess that's plenty. Click. <laughs> right. It's let me call you back so that this wonderful discussion can continue. And that's what we wanted to share with you. Um Maybe a little bit more mindful of the time, because not everybody wants to listen to us for five hours in stretches. So. Well. <laughs> this is our first one. We'll find out. All right. We'll stretch. We'll, we'll do stretches. We'll get there. <laughs> Water breaks will be included. <laughs> I did or die. <laughs> um, because I've seen a gazillion bajillion movies, to give or take a few, uh, this will probably also be smattered with other movie quote references, and so... Uh, get on my level. I don't know. Yeah, we're gonna have to probably give out a lot of paychecks to people for using their royalties. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if this you don't do horrible. the voice. If you don't do the voice very well, does it can still count? I mean, I don't know about you. I do a yeah. I do a spot on dead zone. <laughs> As you will all come to understand, Whitney is much better at impressions by me. That much better than me at impressions by an order of, like, to the nth degree. Uh, so Tec- technical number. another technical term we math, you know. <laughs> but um, so that'll happen a lot. So I have more references. She has infinitely better impressions. <laughs> so there's that. Uh, the other fun thing is that we have between the two of us a. Uh, a very unique memory set and it has been known to happen on at least one definitely more occasions in which we can spend a a three-hour car ride quoting an hour and a half long movie because we like to do our favorite parts twice yeah <laughs> <laughs> poor mary alice <laughs> there was a time we were riding in a car um on this road trip and our friends were they went to sleep because we were quoting remember the titans for such a long time and when they woke up from their nap two hours later they said you're still quoting this movie isn't the movie only like an hour and a half long <laughs> to which we replied yeah 
but we had to do some of our favorite parts a few times. <laughs> so. Um, okay, so that is why we wanted to do this podcast, and we'll see trial and error if it works. Uh, and then what it is, I guess is maybe hopefully clear by now, but if not, we'll clarify it up a little bit. We want to discuss a movie, a book, a song, or a um, collection of songs. That part is Whitney likes music, or Whitney is much more music than I am. <laughs> uh, and she's always discovering new stuff, especially from her students. Mm. And so there's a lot of wonderful and delightful things that come out of that whole part of her life uh, that I am very interested in spending a little bit more time with. So maybe we'll dance into that realm at a certain point. But for now, uh, we are going to talk about one movie or a like pair of movies uh, per episode. And today we're going to talk about Hillbilly Elegy, the movie. Now, I understand that it's a real person. J.D. Vance is a real person. We're not talking about J.D. Vance's actual. There's also the book that came before the movie, as often is the case. And we're not talking about the book necessarily. Uh, we are just talking about the Netflix movie that has a pretty awesome cast and came out a few years ago. Like, spoiler alert, we've uh, already had this discussion a few times between us and then also a few times, and then also another time with a bunch of our friends. So the thing about a great movie is that it's kind of inexhaustible. Uh, so we'll go through the highlights of all the things that we saw we've talked about already and then maybe and then hopefully some new stuff will come out as it always does which is the other reason why this is a moment of not just like like we're not just showing off for y'all this is the moment in which we all we learn something the other idea the other thing that I really wanted was to not perform for a virtual audience but really just to turn the mics on on what would otherwise be a conversation that we have on the phone while I'm doing my dishes so hillbillyology we're gonna talk about that and then at the end of each episode, we'll announce the movie for the next episode so that you can watch it ahead of time. Well, because a real spoiler alert is that we're going to spoil the hell out of everything that we're discussing. Absolutely. And we're not going to hold back and say, but we're not going to tell you, we'll let you watch it because hopefully you've watched it before you've come to listen to us so that we can discuss the whole thing through. Because that's what, I mean, the... Ending is usually the beautiful part, right? This is where all the things come together. So we want to be able to discuss that. And we want you to be able to listen. And if you don't know the ending already, you're going to by the end of this episode. The, there's probably, so definite spoiler alerts. And then probably also definite things that um, are maybe not like kid-friendly necessarily. So we're not trying to be vulgar for vulgar's sake. That's not actually that entertaining. Um, however, we are grown-ups, and we live amongst grown-ups, and so we talk like grown-ups, and that'll either be something that you're interested, like, that you're okay with your kids hearing or not, up to you as a responsible person with little ones around. So we're not trying to be vulgar for vulgar's sake, but you'll have to decide for yourself if the way in which we conduct ourselves is appropriate for small ears. I really appreciate that I'm the school teacher and you're the Navy pilot, and you're the one announcing this. Like, <laughs> that didn't occur to me. I'm just like, let the fucks fly. Like, <laughs> well, <laughs> which is something you say every day at work. <laughs> yeah. 
as my brothers will uh, constantly remind me, Carrie, the way that you talk is not appropriate for small children. Can you watch it while they're around? Yes, I have teacher filter now. So. Yeah, I don't have that because it's what not this part thing of my does. <laughs> No part of my waking existence requires a filter until small children come around, so I'm not very, I'm not as practiced as an old wood dog here. Or quick note on method. Quick note on method. We are, so Whitney does this for a living, she's an English teacher. Uh, I am a, just an amateur lover of literature and things. Uh, so while a literary analysis is not something that is foreign to us. In fact, this is like what makes our hearts beat a little bit. So one thought that is not ours is that you have to take the writer's intention into account, right? And that the outside um, factors have to be something that is part of a uh, well-constructed analysis of whatever primary text you're working on. We are of the other school that says that if that when a when a work of art is made, it's it's like the genius of that person has created something that is more than the sum of his or her parts. And so if it's if it's there, then it's real and it's had a um, like it's impacted me. And so we can talk about it, right? Uh, so we are sort of fortunate that our first episode is Hillbilly Elegy because we have an actual person, J.D. Vance, with whom this is his actual life, and he wrote an actual book that takes into account actual statistics and uh, studies and his real-life experiences and the way that he remembers things and the, and the conversations he's had with his family and a bunch of people who have... Uh, names, first names and last names who come from real places. They have birth certificates and death certificates and there are, you know, marriage licenses and all kinds of paperwork that follow these people around of which the facts are important. And then there's a movie. And the movie is its own work of art that is based on those other two real things. So for today, we are talking about the movie. So it doesn't matter to us uh, what like the disparity between the book or the movie, it doesn't matter to us what J.D. Vance actually thinks or says in political speeches or in, you know, commencement graduation speeches or motivational speeches or whoever he talks to or what he says to his cousin on the phone after Thanksgiving. None of those things matter to our discussion today or they, they aren't direct, like, influencers of our discussion today. Okay. Uh, so the action of the movie takes place in a couple of days, like over the course of maybe a week in which JD Vance is a law school student at Yale. And, uh, he finds out that his mother back in Ohio just overdosed on heroin and he has final interviews for like summer internships or something like that. Uh, it's like a big moment in his law school career. He has those this week. So he needs to drive home from Yale to Ohio and deal with the situation because his sister is there, but she's married and has kids and is in over her head and needs a little bit of help. And so he goes home to deal with that and then he has to make it back in time for 
uh, an interview with a person that he really, really wants to interview with because he wants to go with his girlfriend to Washington D.C. for they want to be in they want to be in the same city for their internships, and so he wants to intern with this particular lawyer in this particular firm, and. If he wants to do, if that means that if that is going to happen, he needs to get back for this interview. So the drama of the movie takes place in over this span, interspersed continually with flashbacks to his childhood, his mother's childhood, his grandmother's childhood, uh, and we get to understand the whole like Vance family, which is also the Blanton family, uh, that comes from. Their origins are they are hill people of the hills in Kentucky, and his grandmother and grandfather left when they were teenagers to move to Ohio, which was a up and coming industrial town, where they had their three children, and raised them, and then stayed, and then those children stayed there, uh, and had families and lives and grew up, and the so the the youngest child of one of the daughters is J.D. Vance. So the main characters of this movie are J.D. Vance, who's both the narrator and the subject, mostly, and then his sister, Lindsay, and then their mother, Beverly, and then their grandmother and grandfather, who are Mama and Papa, respectively. And then J.D. Vance's uh, girlfriend, Usha, who is his girlfriend from Yale who's never met any of the rest of his family. So that's the main like tension and drama and the tension and drama is will he make it back for his interview and what will happen with his mother who just overdosed on heroin but is alive. So when I first started watching this movie I was trying very hard to distance myself from I guess the the setting of this movie, the people of this movie, I didn't want to recognize that I knew personally like who these people were, you know, that I could say I knew for my own life um, this lifestyle. And not because like this is what my family went through, um, but because of where I grew up. So... I was watching this and it was funny because as the movie was beginning and you see him like riding his bike and going to the water and picking up this turtle and then he's like at the swimming hole and whatnot and he's like jumped by all these kids and all these things. You like see the setting in this like backwoods town and you realize like, oh crap, yeah, this looks real familiar. (laughs) And I... I kept trying to distance myself from it. But then there was this scene in the movie where his grandpa dies and they're taking, they brought his body back to the hill country of Kentucky and they're for the funeral procession, they're going through the town. And I know this happens differently in the movie. Like, so this is why we say, okay, we're talking about the movie today. So in the movie, they're going through and they're in the, car and as they're passing through the town they look up and he sees that like all the people are getting out of their cars right they're stopping their cars on the street they're getting out of the cars they're taking the hats off their heads and putting them over their chest and JD asks his mama he says mama why are they doing that and his mama says because we're hill people JD we respect our dead and that line like 
caught me right in my throat because I realized like I've seen this like um, I've seen this in my own life you know uh, my own my mom died in February of this year and I grew up in Chattahoochee Florida <laughs> and these are the people that showed up she she died at uh, six in the morning, and when the ambulance left, like twenty minutes later, these are the people that showed up and were putting whiskey in our coffee, and making sure that we had everything we needed. And then, as soon as the sun was up and it was a respectable hour, they were bringing by, like, pans of roast beef and anything they could think of except for a vegetable, unless it was totally greased up. I mean, gosh. <laughs> It was, like, amazing to see, not just, like, oh, the neighbors were coming by and whatnot, but at one point, this car pulls up. I mean, one of the first people to drive up, this car pulls up, and I look up, and I didn't recognize this man at first, and I asked my older brother, I said, who is that? And he didn't, he didn't know at first, but when I looked up and I asked him, I said, who is that? It took us a bit to recognize him because we hadn't seen him in years because it was the auctioneer from when we sold cows as children in 4-H. <laughs> and it was like, who has kept in touch with this man? How did he find out my mom died today? You know, like, and it didn't matter. Like, these were the people showing up. And so, like, that line was what connected me to say... Yeah, this is where I grew up, like, in a community like this. And so I was able to see, like, this was the life that a lot of my neighbors lived. And um, because of that, I found that my heart was then rooting for all of these characters. Um, I couldn't, I couldn't villainize anything. I couldn't villainize their circumstances in the movie. I couldn't villainize the mother who makes choices that are choices I do not understand. But I could never look at her and say, how could you? Mm. Or I couldn't say, could you imagine? Instead, I looked at her and my heart wanted what was best for her. And so that moment at the end of the film, when JD looks at her and he says, I want you to be happy. It's like this, this line just packs a punch because you hear it and you're just like, yeah, <laughs> so do I. Because I look at my neighbors with the same hope, right? These people who are in the same situation. My family chose to move out to Chattahoochee. But we were surrounded by people who had been out there for generations who did not make that decision. And I saw people in that level of poverty and tragedy that you see in Hillbilly Elegy. Or the, it's not that the only connection is that these people showed up and brought food when my mom died. Mm -mm. Yeah, that was one of the opening lines of the movie is, um, it's about him. Uh, he's like, I can't, I can't quite put my finger on it. Like what was, like what was missing, right? And he says, maybe what was missing was hope. I love this movie because it's not just like, it's not just me and Whitney who don't villainize these people. It's, that JD is telling this story that is, by all accounts, hard and tragic. Mm. Um, 
but he's telling it with such a tenderness. And his starting point is that these are hill people and these are his people. Not they were his people, they are his people. But that's not a given. Right. So that's the thing. In Hillbilly Elegy, there's like this struggle of identity. And this movie moves back and forth. And this is emphasized by... Like, the struggle of identity is emphasized by the flashbacks from present day, um, like Carrie was saying in the summary, right? Where it's present day, JD trying to get this interview and having to go back to his mom who just OD'd. And then, past tense, (laughs) um, we're going to, like, kid JD raising up in this, like, being brought up in this tension with his mama and Lindsay and his mom who um, is manic and is caught in this like tornado of different men and trying to get like really she wants what's best for her kids but she's not in the state of any kind of health to be able to make that happen um so there's this struggle of identity as you kind it's like is he where he's from or is he where he is or where he's going or trying to get to and where is that right And so you see all of this and it's like as he's like looking at these stories from the past and he's looking at the now and he's no he knows these people that he loves in moments of both. Is this something to be proud of or is it something to be ashamed of? And it's incredible because in the beginning there's this dinner uh, that he has to go to and um, and you see him, he he walks in there and there's the everybody's in, you know, suits and ties and everybody looks comfortable except for him. And he feels so uncomfortable. And then you see the waiter who brings the tray with the red wine glasses and the white wine glasses. And um, and the and he's like there with like a mentor or somebody, you know, puts his name tag on, he's walking around. And the waiter says, red wine or white, sir? And he's just going to pass entirely on the wine, so he doesn't have to choose. But then the guy he's with is like, oh, yeah, they're serving the good stuff. Like, have some. And then he goes, uh, white. And the... And then it's like, he's like, okay, this perfect. This one or that one? Yeah, yeah, this one or that one. He's like, all right, white. I don't know what I'm doing, so I'll just pick one. And then he says, would you like the Sauvignon Blanc or the Chardonnay? And you and like he looks up at that man, and you can tell, like, is this a, like, he's, are you testing me? And like, bro. <laughs> right? Like, ah, I don't know. Like, you can tell he doesn't know a thing about either one of those wines. He's never heard of those wines. And so he says Chardonnay because it's probably easier to say. And like, but you can tell that for him, everything about this dinner is a test. And then he sits down at the table and there's a ton of silverware. And so much so that he can't even like follow the, the, the track of the conversation because he's so worried about what fork to use. <laughs> right? And so he gets up and he calls Usha, his girlfriend. And he's like, he's like, it's like it's some kind of a test. And she says, well, it is a test, baby. Like, yeah, and you know, you took the, he's like, and you, you passed. So next, here comes the next one. Go outside to inside. If it looks funny, if it has a weird edge, it's for fish, you know. And like she gives him the whole thing, and the one on the top is dessert forks. And, and then like, you know, D for drink and B for bread, and that's how you know where things are, or whatever. And, and so she's like his little Yale spirit guide. And he says, Why do you like me? And she says, Because you don't know which fork to use at dinner. <laughs> <laughs> Like, for him, he feels this tension between 
like I don't belong here and yet all I want to do is is make it here like he feels this tension so strongly and he in the as we get to know him and as he moves through it you see this growth but at the beginning for him the fact that that tension even exists is evidence for why he doesn't belong right that the tension is there is like therefore he shouldn't be here and she shouldn't love him because he's of a different kind and you have to watch him struggle through making sense of who he because because until he can until he can have some kind of tenderness for who he is it doesn't matter where he is he'll have to surround himself with people that are just like him or else suffocate but like but what's so beautiful about this movie is that there's this trajectory in which in which he grows in not only tenderness for his family but that's already there like he's born with that this huge desire to defend them and let them defend him and like to say these are my like these are my people right it's in his blood right because there's this moment where they're sitting at the table yeah right and he's sitting there and while he's looking at his fingers and he's putting them in the shapes of b's and d's and he's trying to remember b for bread d for drink and somebody says oh man like thank god you got out of that place and you left all those rednecks behind and it's like that's the moment he can break his concentration from which freaking fork do i use to look up from the table and say we don't use that term (laughs) we don't say rednecks right and that's like the only time you see like this pride come out of like no no this i can stand up against right this i can i i can put a stake in here yeah and i think that traces back to mama but i want to talk more about mama later yeah so this is something that i could relate to as i watched him like struggle with this of like Do I put pride on it? Do I put shame in it? Right? Um, Because it was like... I know growing up, uh, where I grew up, you watch these different things and you're around these different people and you have these stories. Stories that you eventually stop telling. That you... You get tired of like trying to tell these stories to people... And, like, share a bit about who you are because people have so many different reactions to them. Because it's so foreign to most people. Right. And so you... for you is foreign. Eventually, you just stop telling the stories. And because you get tired of hearing people say, like, oh, man, I can't imagine. Or you get tired of people saying, oh, wow, how could you? And so... Or the worst, oh, man, what a badass. (laughs) and so eventually you just stop telling the stories and they just become facts about who you are and so you put them in your backpack and you learn to walk with them but they're not heavy right like that's the uh the beauty of these facts that intercept you and that like that at a certain point you take out your backpack and you start to look through them and you realize I am not me without these things. Like these things made me. And that's the that's the other journey that we see JD make 
is from my like this realization that my backpack is full of things that you can't possibly imagine. These are my facts that I do not talk about, not even with Usha, and that I walk with these and nobody looks in my backpack because you won't understand what you see in there. But for me, these are the facts that make up my life. Until this moment when he is driving home or driving to the interview. He's driving from his mother and he's driving to the interview and he realizes he's going to have to drive through the night. And Usha realizes this and she says, okay, I'll keep you company, right? And she starts unloading the dishwasher and she stays on the phone with him. And she doesn't say like, okay, tell me all about yourself. Like, okay, now keep me entertained. She just says, okay, I'll keep you company. And it's this moment of like, he recognizes this person who's willing to look at him with the tenderness that I I think J- JD has only seen one other time in his life. Yeah. And so at this moment, JD then or maybe can... maybe one other person. Right. Yeah. That's what I mean. But like at this moment, like JD can open that backpack and start to look at everything that even he hasn't wanted to look at. Right. Which I think is like where the narration of the movie comes from almost. And maybe the book comes from, which is why you and I can sit here and discuss it. Yeah. And it could be on this podcast for all four of our listeners. (laughs) Thanks guys. (laughs) You're the best. (laughs) But because she was willing to say, I'll keep you company. And this changes everything for him. And to the point where he's telling these stories and you can see it in his eyes as he's like crying and talking about it, that these are facts with tenderness now. And it doesn't, it still doesn't have to be facts with pride or facts with shame, but they're facts with tenderness, right? It like bypasses both those categories. It like cuts straight through into something totally new. Exactly. That he's never, he's like never gotten to experience before because even, even amongst the hill people, even amongst his family, even amongst, even amongst Mama, who we understand late, like who we get to know and we're just like, man, that woman is comfortable in her skin, right? Like the, that woman knows who she is, but I don't think even Mama arrived here. No, because there's this moment, JD had the same question for Mama mm-hmm. that he had for Usha. When JD says to Usha on the phone, why do you even like me? JD asks his mama in the car, why do you even want me? Right? Mm-hmm. When they're arguing about the calculator. That's right. And mama says, who said I even wanted you? This is not a popularity contest. So even this moment is not a moment about tenderness and a presence and knowing that you're loved. Right? Like, which is like this thing that comes later in his life. Even that is missing from that relationship with Mama. It's not fully there because she hasn't seen it for herself. Yeah. I would argue. And I think that that's the epidemic of hopelessness. Right? That's where that comes from. Is this. So a lot of our friends. Um, had like kind of got cringy or got suspicious because they're like, well, this is sort of like one of those pull yourself up by your bootstrap sort of stories. And, uh, you know, they, 
they like Lindsay so much better because she doesn't run from, she doesn't have to get out in order to escape the cycle, right? She stays put and yet she still has a, a happy marriage with, you know, with kids and they stay married and she's, you know, well adjusted and living her best life, whatever, right? But she does it all without having to go to Yale Law School and be a yuppie. And, um, and so they think, so the, the argument was, well, I mean, but do you have to run away from where you're from in order to quote unquote make it, right? What about Lindsay? Like, yes. So the, we thought about the end, like, and I appreciated that because I hadn't thought about it. I hadn't thought like that he had to run maybe because that's the story of my life too. Like it, yeah, that I, I very much identify with stories that I don't tell people from my growing up situation all the way to, and now I live on an opposite coast and I do a thing that, uh, that nobody in my life, like nobody growing up could ever imagine that anybody would do, you know, much less me. And I, but I don't feel like I ran from anything, right? I feel very, like I feel very much an Oregonian in a booth and from my home, you know? Um, but I was, I appreciated the, like the question from our friends because it highlights this, like, what is it, what does it mean to have hope? Does it mean, or like, what is the byproduct of hopelessness, right? Is it just having hope? So like, is, is the American dream having a good job, having a good car, having a good house, making a good salary and not having any like problems. Is that the American dream or is the American dream something else that JD is after? Right. I can keep pointing back to that small scene in the beginning of those lawyers sitting at the table or the men waiting for the interviews and whatnot, who are all asking the same thing and who say the same thing to him. Oh, like you got out. Yeah. And to them, JD is achieving the American dream. Right. Right. And to JD's friends at the barbecue or whatever, the soccer game, soccer mom, soccer mom, mom game thing, thing, whatever, like JD is achieving the American dream. He's getting out. Um, and so this whole like pull yourself up by your bootstraps and achieve it. Of course, this is going to be in this book or in this movie, because this is like such a part of what our country thinks is the American dream. Like, this is what people come to America to be able to do, mm-hmm. to be able to get out, to achieve, to build, yeah. right? To succeed. Right. Yeah. And to have. Yeah. But it, so it is interesting about Lindsay. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that he, like, his defenses go up when somebody, quote unquote, accuses him of having made it. Right. Like, he feels... And he'll tell Usha this all the time. Like, he feels like such outsider at Yale, but then he feels like an outsider at the barbecue with his high school buddies too, mm-hmm. right? So he feels an outsider wherever he is. And and yet that car ride home in which he's telling... Because Usha says, I will keep you company. And he, and he first, he protests, right? No, 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 you got to go to bed. It's late, blah, blah, blah. She goes, oh, no, no, no. If we're doing this, we're doing this. And I will keep you company. And... And she doesn't say, now tell me everything about you that I don't know, right? Like, like you said, she's just there. And the thing that's most present for him is all the things that he's, that he's been having to sift through in these days of finding out about his mom and going home and having to deal with all that and coming back. And so he can't help but tell her 
all of these things. But now, like you said, he's telling them to somebody who loves him because he doesn't know what fork to use and he's not a douchebag, <laughs> right? And who he has like enough signs of that he can he can tell all these things too. And he doesn't have to, like, exactly like you said, he doesn't have to be ashamed, doesn't have to be proud. He can just be himself. And I think that's the thing that Mama never, like, she was so comfortable in her own skin, but she never got the chance to look back on her life and read those facts with love. With a tenderness. With yeah. a tenderness, right? She never got to, to go back over her life with somebody who would love all of those details because there's this one incredible scene uh, and as she gets pneumonia she's in the hospital and um, she's JD comes in and like accuses her of trying to die on him (laughs) are you gonna die and she's like what the hell are you talking about like like, I don't know that right but uh, he goes off and gets himself in trouble and he almost gets arrested and Lindsay comes in and like and sees Mama and is going on and on about how, like, uh, he could have gotten in real trouble. I didn't, you know, I didn't take good care of him. I'm always running off with Kevin. I never brought him along, blah, blah, blah. And Mama looks her square in the face and says, he's not your son. That's not your job, baby girl. Like, you have a right to your own life. And then that night she's laying there and she's looking up at the ceiling and she's running through all of the ways in which she failed her daughter. And that failure is now being transmitted to her grandchildren. Lindsay, who is in danger of not making her own life because she's trying not to forget her kid brother. And JD, who's in danger of ruining everything because he doesn't know he's wanted. And so she, like, so she does this thing that is, I think, the first step, right? The first step of this epidemic of hopelessness is to call spades spades and mama has this incredible courage to say i done fucked up these things and these things i have some responsibility in and those things were hers and those things got transmitted to her children and those are the things that she is that she wants to like minimize the damage of right she doesn't want that She doesn't want that ripple to spread out through all the generations. She wants to nip that in the bud right now because she's still here. And so she gets up the next day and she breaks out of the hospital and she goes home and she takes JD and she says, you're coming to live with me, right? And it's that moment in which she is brave enough to say, I done fucked up these things that makes it even possible for JD to later say, this is like, these are the things that happened and they didn't just happen to me. They happened, I was there, right? And this finally like a healthy, true relationship between me and the facts lets you then look at them with tenderness. Because if everything just happens to you, then there's no possibility for you to look at them with anything other than like fear and oppression. I think that's what he, that's the thing he learned from Mama was to call spades spades. And then from Usha, he gets to look at those spades and like love them a little bit. But you can't love a thing until you can see it. I think it's funny too. This, so this doesn't happen instantly. So he moves in with Mima. 
and this doesn't get this doesn't fix everything because all of a sudden life is stable right right so he moves in with Mama, and she still yells at him for the way he doesn't do the dishes, for the way he sits on the couch playing that Game Boy, and all the things, right? And he tries to steal the calculator that he needs. And he's a really bad thief, by the way. Can we just talk about that for a yeah, second? That's like... <laughs> His mom was a better thief. Than way him. better. Way better. She's like. and so then like um he tries to steal the calculator mama catches him and she buys the calculator there's this moment where she comes in and jd's on the game boy and the there's the knock at the door and it's the meals on wheels kid and she comes in and she tells the guy like he hands her the meals and she's like asks for a little bit more she says i called ahead and there should be more because it's not just me, it's me and my grandson. And the kid's like, ah, well, I just deliver the meals, you know? And it's like this little teenager and here's this woman that we just saw like break her strong ass out of the hospital with all this pride and everything. Yeah, and threaten to run over his friends. Yeah. <laughs> Which you totally think she'll do, by the way. Right. <laughs> and now she's like begging in front of this pimply-faced Meals on Wheels kid for a little bit more. And you realize, she says, because I the, everything's tight, like, and I didn't even have the money for my pills this month, and you realize that money went towards the calculator, which is still sitting in the fucking packaging it came in. So it wasn't the fact that the calculator got bought that changed JV. And it wasn't the fact that she yelled at JD and said, hey, you're going to use this. And it wasn't the fact that she said, hey, your mom gave up, but you don't have to. And in fact, you're the hope of everything and you don't have and you can still do it. That brought the calculator out of the packaging. But it was when JD watched his grandma beg, like humble herself and ask this Meals on Wheels kid for a little bit more food. Which then he gives her some grapes and a bag of chips. And then she gives most of that to JD. Right? Yeah, the much and, bigger portion. Right. And he realizes, like, all of this is for me. Yeah. And that's when the calculator, she doesn't say, now go do the math. <laughs> like, that's when the math happens. Uh, so as soon as the, the calculator comes out, he starts to do the math, but then he also starts to clean the kitchen. The trash goes out, he starts to clean up the pantry, and it's the same cinematography as in the beginning, which is like one of the very first scenes in which you see him busting dishes, and, um, and he's working, and he's working in the kitchen, and he's, and he's washing dishes, and then he almost walks out without his paycheck, and then she stops him like, oh, hey, your paycheck. He takes that, and then, now he's, and then you see him walk across the Yale campus. So when you first meet grown-up J.D., um, it's him working his ass off for his education. And then you see him walking across the iconic Yale campus with all of its big architecture buildings and it's like, you know, Hogwarts for Yale students um, or for law students. And, but it starts off with that frenzy of like working for, his, for a living. And you understand after this Meals on Wheels episode that he learned that 
by his grandmother loving him. Mama loves him into working. She doesn't scold him or chastise him into working because when she picks him up from like the station, you know, where he had gotten nabbed for shoplifting and hands him the calculator, he throws a fit and chucks it out the window, right? And she pulls that car over like my mother would do and like tells him like get out and go get that thing and then she comes in and and there's this like this moment of like half tenderness in which she's exacerbated but also like trying to tell him something important and she says listen the only thing I'll fault your mama for is that she just gave up she quit trying right and that's when JD asked like why do you even want me because it's so imperative for him that he not just exist, but that he be wanted into existence, right? That, cause he, he feels like such a mistake everywhere he goes, except in Jackson, except in the hill country. And then he feels part of a people, but everywhere else he feels like a mistake. And when he's at Yale, he feels like it's a mistake that he's there. Until this, and like even after that dinner in which he chastises this lawyer and tells him, we don't really use that word, and then goes on this long rant about how his mother is smarter than everybody in this room, and they make a crack about, oh, maybe we should be interviewing your mother and not you. And he comes out and you like see him on the phone with Usha and he's like, I totally messed that up. There's no way I'm getting an interview. I completely ruined everything. He feels like a mistake always until this and he feels like he like not just a mistake maybe and maybe that's a little bit too strong but for sure like powerless he feels powerless everywhere and that is the most important like that's the most incredible part about the last scene with his mom in the hotel room is that he finally understands that his powerlessness to fix everything is actually, it's one, it's true, like you can't fix anything. And two, that this like hope isn't about changing people's circumstances. The hope is something else and it's tied to this, your mama just quit trying bit, right? But the only reason he can start to try is because he understands how loved he is. Also, we didn't describe what an elegy is. Ah, true. Very long, very plaintive, very sorrowful poem. Right. Also reflective. The long, sad reflection. Yeah. Slash poem. Yeah. Which is what this movie is. Yeah. So it's like it's like the sad plight of the very proud people that are hillbillies. Mm-hmm. And I think the reason that it's such an elegy, and not just like a tragedy, is. Like, it's not the hillbilly tragedy. It's a, hill, it's a hillbilly elegy. And I think that the reason it's that is because um, there's no reason, per se, why everybody should get caught in this cycle. They're hardworking people. They value family. They're religious. They live in a beautiful place. You know, like, like there's nothing... There's nothing per se that should disqualify them from the 
American dream, quote unquote, and yet they seem to be more and more disenfranchised from it. And I think that that's the central question of the movie, maybe, and what the relationship between Mama, Bev, and JD really highlights, like in micro, is but what is this hopelessness? Like, what is this disenfranchisement? How is because she is the smartest person anybody's met. She was salutatorian of her, um, of her high school. She does love her children. She does come from a, a family that cared about her education and whatever, right? And it's very interesting that like the flashbacks that JD has and in the order in which he has them. So like one of the very first images we have of Bev is her like packing up the car. She wants to leave this place, but then she sees her son come back after he just got his ass kicked, but that his people finish for him. And she looks at him and she looks like she grabs his face and she says earnestly, are you okay? He says, yeah, mama. And she goes, okay, that's my boy, right? And like, you can see that she's very concerned, but she's also very proud. And then the very first flashback we get is her on the porch with him, reading to him and asking him what a tadpole becomes. And he's little, little, like a toddler. And he says, a frog. And she says, that's right, a frog. So like, she's teaching him, right? She takes the time to read to them. She makes sure they have a library card, you know, like, so, there's no reason per se why they should be disenfranchised from the American dream and yet they are, right? And so I think that this relationship highlights all the things that plague this proud, capable people that on which our country is built. It's the backs of working class whites that support everything else. Like that is a huge pillar, one among many of an incredible nation and yet that pillar is crumbling and he wants to understand why because these are his people but i think what's interesting about this story is that it doesn't end with a lack of hope being the last word facts so that is hillbilly elegy and i think before you join us next time you should watch saint Saint Vincent vincent with bill murray which is incredible So we think. So we think. Hopefully we have something to say about it. (laughs) So, Thanks for joining us. Bye for now.